0: Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. Let me invite you to grab your Bibles, no matter where you are located right now, and, and turn them open to Acts chapter 24. As we pick up where we left off last week, as we are in the final chapters of this incredible book, this book that chronicles the birth of the church in the world and the, and the movement of the gospel during the, the early years of the church's existence, a movement that you and I are still a part of today and that we have the privilege of being a part of here in the city of Seattle, And my prayer is that you and I would continue to make much of Jesus, that we would give the city a taste of heaven, wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we learn, wherever we play, that we would make much of Jesus, giving people a taste of heaven so that they would want to follow Jesus with us, trust in Jesus with us, grow in Jesus with us. The Apostle Paul has been doing this. He's been traveling the known world, making much of Jesus, introducing people to the reality of the gospel. And and at times, his life and ministry has been challenged. In fact, as the book of Acts is drawing to a close, the heat on Paul's life and ministry is being turned up. He's being opposed. He's being slandered. He's being challenged. And so I want to ask you this morning as we get started is, what do you do when the heat, when heat is turned up on your life and on your gospel witness? How do you respond when following Jesus is neither popular nor applauded? In those moments, are you able to rise to the occasion and exercise faith and fidelity to Jesus? Or do you shrink back in fear and frustration over, over how hard it might be and over how opposed you may be in your faith? Well, one of the things I love about this this passage, is that it shows us that Paul often rose to the occasion. And he rises to the occasion in this text in in two ways. On one hand, he does so by maintaining a composed demeanor. He is calm, cool, and collected. He isn't overly defensive. He isn't reactive. He isn't hyper-emotional in response to being slandered and opposed. No, he's maintaining composure. His composed demeanor is an example of him rising to the occasion, but also, in addition to maintaining a composed demeanor, Paul sets forth a courageous example. He bears witness to the, to the gospel, and he shares the beauty of Jesus with someone in power who, and he does so in a way that was quite challenging, and we'll see that here in a moment. As we get ready to dive into Acts chapter 24, let me voice a prayer for us and we will get started. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we open up our Bibles? Would you open up our hearts to receive your word? Holy Spirit, would you feed us? Would you nourish us? Would you encourage and build us up? All in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, at the start of Acts chapter 24, Paul has been kept under guard and Herod's place in Caesarea for five days. He's been waiting trial, and, and those who wanted to prosecute him, those who were raising charges against him, just kind of took their time to get there. Probably because they were trying to build a case, but perhaps in their research and in their efforts to build a strong case against Paul, they were unable to do so, which you'll see here in a moment. But five days later, we're told that Ananias, the high priest, and a hired legal gun, Tertullus, who, was, who may have been a Roman, may have been a Gentile, was probably not Jewish, but they bring him along to interface between them and Governor Felix to, to try to bring the charges against Paul to his attention. And, and all the charges that are raised are trumped up. They're trumped up charges designed to do two things. On one hand, they want to slander Paul. They want to tear his character down. And on the other hand, they, they want to ensure that Paul is punished to the furthest extent of the law, not because they cared about the law, but because they hated Paul. They wanted to see Paul put to death, and they're hoping that this trial will end in that, in that conclusion. Now, Tertullus was a skilled trial lawyer, and, and you can see this just in how he approaches a, a case where there isn't a lot of evidence to be brought. He, he starts by flattering Felix he speaks flattering words to the governor to ingratiate himself and those he represents to him. Notice in verse two, Tertullus says, we enjoy great peace because of you and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix with utmost gratitude. Flattering words, flattering speech. And what's laughable about that is that The Jewish population did not admire Felix. They did not respect him. They did not like him. In fact, they hated Felix. Felix was viewed as as a brutal and vicious governor. Anything that he thought smelt like a Jewish uprising or a revolution, he would come in with heavy-handed force, with brute force to stomp it all out. And so the Jews did not like Felix And so the fact that Felix is being flattered in this moment is is laughable. But then Tertullus goes on and he asks for a brief hearing. And that too is laughable. He wants the hearing to be brief because he doesn't have a lot of evidence to bring to the table. He doesn't have a strong evidential case against Paul. He doesn't even have eyewitnesses at the table, those who can verify the charges that he's going to raise against Paul. So he wants the hearing to be brief, quite honestly, because he doesn't have a lot to say. But when you look at verse 5, you find the first charge against Paul, and that is they they slander him as being a disturber of the peace. Verse 5, for we have found this man to be a plague, that is, to be a sickness, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world. Now, this was a calculated political charge. A calculated political charge that that fit squarely in Felix's area of responsibility. This was kind of a stroke of genius on Tertullus's part. To call Paul a disturber of the peace, that was designed to get Felix's attention so that he would want to hear the case through. Now, it's true that riots broke out wherever Paul tended to go. Most recently, a riot broke out in the city of Ephesus. And, but you know, perhaps, because you were with us as we studied that portion of Acts, that the riots didn't break out because of, anything, because of Paul, per se. Those riots broke out because of the people who opposed Paul, who did not like Paul or respect Paul. So when the gospel came to the city of Ephesus, it began to take root in people's lives, it began to change things, turning the world upside down, but there were people who held stock in the old world and they didn't want things to change people of power, people of means, people of influence. And when, when the city began to change because people were loving Jesus and following Jesus, that threatened them, and so they wanted to stomp it out. And so they rallied a crowd, arose the passions of the crowd, spread lies about Paul to, to cause a riot to break out. So they described him as being a disturber of the peace, but Paul did not disturb the peace. It was those who opposed him. But then they go on in verse 5, and they refer to Paul as a dangerous revolutionary. Strong implication. Notice verse 5. He says he's also a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, Nazareth, uh, that was Jesus' hometown. And those who followed Jesus were oftentimes described as being... um, a sect of the Nazarenes, because it was a way for people of power and people of influence to kind of put that group down. Nazareth was an irreputable place. It was an irrelevant place. It was an insignificant place. And so if Tertullus and the Jewish authorities could tie Paul to Nazareth, this irreputable, irrelevant, insignificant place then who really cares if justice is served in this moment? Who really cares if they are treated fairly in this trial? Although they don't have evidence, although they don't have eyewitnesses, Felix could still side with them. And many people might not even blink an eye because these are Nazarenes after all. They're irreputable. They are irrelevant. They are insignificant. And so this label is used to slander Paul in the eyes of Felix the governor. This is what labels do. Labels are often used to dehumanize people. This is especially true in the American experience with the rise of racial slurs, when racial slurs have been used to dehumanize segments, dehumanize segments of our population, segments of our society, because if Segments of our society are dehumanized, then it doesn't really matter if they're treated fairly under the law. Slogans and racial slurs like this have that kind of impact. It has that kind of effect. When a group of people is dehumanized, then justice doesn't, then it doesn't really matter if they're treated justly or fairly. Now, one reason I believe that it's important for people like me to Declare explicitly that black lives matter. One of the reasons why I believe it's important for guys like me to declare explicitly that black lives matter, regardless of what one may think of the organization, regardless of what one may think is of the, the formal movement and community organization that it is, regardless of that, the reason why we want to use these words explicitly is because for so long slogans and slurs and images have been used to dehumanize black people in the eyes of our society. And if black people are dehumanized in the eyes of our society, they're going to be treated unfairly. They're not going to be treated justly. And I believe that now words and slogans need to be used to rehumanize them. Words and slogans should be used to to bring them back to equal status in the eyes of our society. So when we say explicitly and just use the words, black lives matter, we are making a theological declaration that's, that's designed to unmake a history of slogans and words that have been used to dehumanize that population in our society. And so we use our, so I say Black Lives Matter, and I would encourage you to use those words to, regardless of what you may think about the organization and that particular, the formal organization that carries the name Black Lives Matter. So here Paul is being treated unfairly. He's being treated unjustly. He's a disturber of the peace. He's a dangerous revolutionary who comes from an, who's a part of an insignificant people group that shouldn't be taken seriously. But then he goes on to verse six and he says that Paul is also a desecrator of the temple. Verse six, it says, he even tried to desecrate the temple and so we apprehended him. Now this charge is a reference to, again, what happened in Ephesus recently. If you look back to chapter 21, verse 28, you're gonna see uh, this charge being raised against Paul. When the riot was breaking out and Paul was being arrested, there were some who shouted, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place, a reference to the temple. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So they believe that he defiled the holy place because he brought non-Jewish people into the temple. But non-Jewish people were allowed in the temple. They just... They were allowed in certain segments of the temple. And so Paul led them there, and and this caused a huge fuss. And so they believed he was a desecrator of the temple, but Paul was a man who, before he entered the temple that day, he washed himself, he purified himself, he respected the practices that were still being used in that moment. He did not enter the temple in a way that would have defiled it or would have desecrated it. So all of these charges are designed to slander Paul. But what I love about Paul's response is that he responds to this slander. He responds to this unjust treatment with a composed demeanor. You see his composure and how he responds to Felix. In verse 10, after the governor motions for Paul to speak, he clarifies, look, I've only been in town for 12 days. And 12 days is hardly enough time for me to start a revolution and to do all the things that you guys are claiming that I have done in the city. I haven't had enough time to infect the city. I mean, it takes COVID-19 14 days before it starts manifesting in our lives. You think Paul's going to do this in 12 days, this plague, this disease? No, he hasn't been around long enough. And so he's just kind of dismissing these. He's saying, look, I haven't caused a disturbance in the temple, in the synagogue, or anywhere in the city. Then he states in verse 13 that they can't prove the charges they're making against me. And so he denies the indefensible case that Tertullus and Ananias have brought to the table. But then he keeps talking, and this is where it gets really good. He moves from denying the the indefensible case that has been raised against him and he moves into a positive affirmation. And he begins to affirm the undeniable. He begins to affirm what is true about him and what is true about the life that he's leading. And the first affirmation he makes is he affirms the way he follows. The way he follows in verse 14, but I admit this to you, I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way According to the way of righteousness that was laid out in the Old Testament, but ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Who would declare in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, look, I do follow Jesus. I am a follower of Christ. I I live according to the way. They call it a sect, which makes it a splinter group within Judaism. But I'm here to tell you that it's the way. It's not a sect injured in Judaism. It's actually the fulfillment of all of Judaism's hopes and all of Judaism's expectations that the way is the heart of Judaism because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And so he's there. He's following the way, which isn't a sect. It's the substance of the Jewish faith having been made fully known. And so he talks about the way he follows. Yes, I'm following Jesus, but then he affirms the Bible he believes. He keeps talking, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. He's saying, look, I believe the Bible. I believe the Old Testament, and those who are accusing me, they profess to believe the Bible too. But Paul understands that everything written about written in the law and written in the prophets, all of it was designed to bring a person into the way, to connect a person to Christ, to connect a person to Jesus. Luke made this clear at the end of his gospel in Luke chapter 24. He would make the statement about the scriptures, referring to a moment when Jesus is talking to two discouraged disciples about how it was necessary for the Messiah, the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. In verse 27, he writes, then beginning with Moses, that is the law, and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Paul is saying, look, the reason why I am following the way is because the Bible tells me to. The Old Testament prepared the way for me to understand who the Messiah is and what the Messiah accomplished. And Jesus would say the exact same thing one day when he's talking to a group of religious leaders who believe the Bible and profess faith in the scriptures, who held the law and the prophets in highest authority, and, and he looks at them in John chapter 6, verse 39, and he says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you, have, so that you may have life. He's saying, yeah, you guys profess to believe the Bible. You read the Bible. You study the Bible. But you haven't found life in Christ. And if you haven't found life in Christ, then you don't really believe the Bible. Certainly don't believe it rightly. And so Paul's saying, look, I'm believing the Scriptures because the Scriptures lead me to the way. They lead me to Jesus. Because all that is written in the law and the prophets bears witness to Jesus the Messiah. Many people today read the Bible for many reasons. One of the most common reasons, I think, that shows up in the, the so-called culture wars that are waging in our society and in our country, a lot of times in those wars, we, we take pieces of verses and we launch them as ammo in the fight of culture wars and we take pieces of scripture, we disconnect them from their context, we disconnect them from their telos or their goal or their target and we use them in ways that, that God doesn't bless because God's word is given to us, not so much that we can learn how to live life in this world. God's word is given to us so that we can learn how to live life in Christ, so that we would put our faith in Christ, so that we would understand the scriptures in light of Christ. And so if we're disconnecting verses and decontextualizing passages in a way that doesn't... that. We're not going to get to the telos or the goal or the reason why we have the Bible and and have been given the Bible in the first place. And so let me ask you, Christian, why do you read the Bible? Are you just trying to learn how to live in this world? Or are you reading the Bible because you want to learn how to live in Christ? This is what followers of the way do. This is how we receive the Bible and believe the Bible and respond to the Bible. But then Paul goes on in verse 16 and he refers to the life that he leads. He affirms the life that he has led up to this point in verse 16. He says, I've always, I have always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. The language there speaks of him desiring and striving to be blameless. Now when Paul says that he always strives to be blameless, to have a clear conscience, he, he's not saying that I strive to be sinless. Being blameless and being sinless are not synonymous. They're not the same thing. A blameless person isn't without sin, but a blameless person is without hidden sin. A blameless person is without concealed sin. So when a blameless person like Paul, who wants to have a clear conscience, messes up, they own up to it. They confess, they don't justify. They confess, they don't conceal they bring things into the light because in the light, that's where we are, that's where we find blamelessness. That's where we are blameless. In the light is where we can have a clear conscience before God and before people because we're not putting on a front. We're not acting hypocritically. And so Paul says, look, I've always strived to be blameless before God and before people. This is the life that I'm, I'm leading. So if I'm here, I, uh, and if I've done something wrong, I would own up to it. I would, I would confess if the charges brought against me were true, but they're not. And so I'm going to affirm what needs to be affirmed. And so Paul affirms the way that he follows. He affirms the Bible that he believes, and he affirms the life that he leads. He goes on to explain why he showed up in Jerusalem in the first place. He says in verse 17, after many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. He says, look, the only reason why I'm here is to care for people. I have not come to the city to cause a disturbance or to launch a revolution. I've come to care for hurting people as as Paul's been collecting offerings and gifts from churches throughout the region. And now he has those gifts and he's bringing them to the city so that he can exercise care and compassion and concern for those who are hurting. This was the life that he leads. But then he goes on and hits the bottom line in verse 21. This is the heart of the matter. The heart of the opposition is found in verse 21, where Paul talks about the hope that he holds. He says, today I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. He's saying the real reason I'm here right now isn't because I've disturbed the peace. It isn't because I've desecrated the temple. It isn't because I'm a I uh, am a dangerous revolutionary. Those aren't the reasons why I am here. I am here because I believe in the resurrection. And ironically, so did the Pharisees. So did Ananias, the high priest, and those like him. They believed in the resurrection too. The difference was they believed in a generic or a general uh, resurrection at the end of time. Whereas Paul, who followed the way, who believed in Jesus, he knew that Jesus resurrected in the middle of human history. He resurrected in the middle of human history as the first fruits of what is to come. And this is what emboldened Peter. This is what gave him composure. This is what gave him courage. He knew that because Jesus is risen, because Jesus is alive, he knows that one day he will too. And so he's leaning into this moment, affirming the resurrection of Jesus, because that's the source of his hope. That's the true source of the composure he's showing in this moment. And so these four affirmations of being a follower of the way, a believer in the Bible, the life that he leads, the resurrection of Jesus, these four affirmations, they they hold him together, They, they enable Paul to keep his composure. And at the end of the moment, Felix doesn't issue a verdict, he doesn't place, he doesn't issue a verdict on the trial, he actually delays a verdict. He still keeps Paul under guard because he still wants to kind of keep the Jewish influencers happy. So he keeps Paul under guard, but he's not quite ready to issue a verdict and to sentence Paul in any discernible way. And this is where the scene begins to shift. And we move from seeing Paul's composed demeanor to his courageous example. He's basically kept under guard and And as he's kept under guard, we're told that Felix, in verses 22 through 27, Felix and his wife, Drusilla, they visit Paul and they talk with Paul and they listen to Paul. Now, we don't know exactly why Felix and Drusilla would go and have these moments with Paul that would... That would interact with Paul in this way. No doubt the motivations were probably mixed. On one hand, they were interested in the subject of faith in Christ. They wanted to learn more about what Paul was teaching. But they were also told that they were hoping Paul would give them money. That maybe if they spent time with Paul, Paul would, then want, would, would try to bribe them into releasing him. But Paul was a blameless man, and he was a man of integrity, and he was a man of faith and he was more concerned with remaining faithful to Jesus than he was with remaining alive and so he never tries to bribe Felix and his bride he he interacts with them and what you find in that interaction is that Paul shares the gospel with an inspiring courage with a courage that should inspire you and I as we interact with people and as we seek to share the gospel now the tables turn at this point in the narrative In the first 21 verses of the chapter, Paul is the one who was on trial. But when you get into verse 22 through 27 and the subject of Christ is being discussed between Paul and Felix and Drusilla, we find the tables turning and now Felix and his bride are on trial. Now they're the ones on trial and they're being confronted with the subject of faith. We're told that Paul talked with them about the subject of faith in Christ and he took that conversation in three pointed directions. He talked with them about righteousness, he talked with them about self-control, and he talked with them about the final day of judgment. And each one of these themes would hit close to home for Felix and Drusilla. Each one of these subjects would challenge them in a personal way. See, if Paul was more concerned with remaining alive than he was with remaining faithful, then he would never have gone in this direction. He would not have talked about righteousness, self-control, and a coming day of judgment, because history tells us that Felix and Drusilla, their relationship was wasn't right. Now, to give you a little bit of history, Felix was uh, the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to become a governor of a Roman province. And this happened not because Felix was very talented and charismatic and gifted. It happened because Felix befriended the right people when he was a child. As a child, he and his brother Paulus were set free by a woman named Antonia. Antonia was the mother of Prince Claudius. Claudius would one day become Caesar. And as they were growing up in childhood... Felix's brother, Paulus, became friends with Claudius. And once Claudius became Caesar, then Paulus was able to persuade him to appoint Felix in his position. So he was given the position because of his brother's influence. And during his governorship, insurrections and anarchy increased all throughout Palestine. And this is why he was so brutal in his treatment of others. And the Roman historian Tacitus described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. He was not a good man. He was a brutal man. And Drusilla was his third wife. She was his third wife and Felix was her her second husband. In fact, Felix kind of stole her away from her first husband. He intervened and wooed her away so that she could become his bride and And she had a reputation for being unusually beautiful and of possessing an ambition that matched Felix's. And so together, they made quite a pair. And their relationship was anything but righteous. It did not exercise much self-control. And it was a relationship that should have feared the coming day of judgment. And so if Paul wanted to keep things kosher, so to speak, if he wanted to keep things clean, he, he would have avoided those topics. But This is what I love about Paul. He hits these themes, courageously hits these themes because Paul actually loved people. He did not theoretically love people. He actually loved people. And you and I are not actually loving people when we refuse to address subjects that expose their need for Jesus. When we allow themes and subject matters that hits close to home in people's lives, we ignore those, we refuse to address those with the gospel. We're not actually loving people, we're just theoretically loving them. We're claiming to love them. But Paul doesn't just claim to love people. He actually loves people. So he takes the conversation in these directions. And we discover something about sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel shouldn't be done in a vacuum. Sharing the gospel should take place in the context of personal lives. In the context of personal lives where sin in its where specific forms of sin and brokenness may be addressed. So that we're talking about real needs that people have, real reasons why those that we love, those that we're concerned for, those that we, that we want to exercise courage towards, we want to connect the dots between specific forms of sin, specific forms of brokenness, and the deliverance, the redemption, the salvation that Jesus has come to bring you know, our love for Jesus grows when we are aware of specific reasons for why we need him, when we are aware of specific reasons why he shouldn't love us, but then we're told that he does love us and that he gave his life for us. That melts the heart, that, that changes our lives, that invigorates our souls, and so we want to share the gospel not in a vacuum. We want to share the gospel in the context of personal lives, actually loving people, addressing specific reasons, specific needs, specific concerns with the reality of Jesus and his gospel. This is what Paul is doing here. He loves people enough to confront them, he loves people enough to have the hard conversation. He loves people enough to put himself at risk because he's talking to the man who holds his fate. In his hands, so it seems. The man who could sentence him to death in any moment, but he loves him too much, and he's faithful to Jesus, or he's so faithful to Jesus, he continues the conversation in this direction. This encounter is a lot like the encounter John the Baptist had with Herod that caused John the Baptist to lose his head, and he was beheaded by Herod because of what he said specifically to Herod about his need for a savior, his need for grace. And so Paul's having this conversation. He's being very courageous. And notice that his words impact Felix. His words hit Felix hard. Notice verse 25. Verse 25 says that, Now he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix became afraid. Felix started to tremble. Paul's words begin to have an impact on the governor. He's trembling as the Holy Spirit is attending to Paul's sharing of the gospel in this moment. And we know that the Holy Spirit's ministry is to to bear witness to sin and righteousness and judgment. And all of that is converging here in Felix's life and he's trembling, he's afraid, he has an opportunity to respond positively. Unfortunately, he doesn't. Unfortunately he does not respond positively to the gospel. He doesn't respond positively to what Jesus is telling, what Paul is telling him. Now, what's interesting about this moment is that there are basically two tragedies. There are two tragedies that can fall upon every human heart and upon every human soul. One tragedy is the tragedy of never trembling of never becoming aware of your sin, of your brokenness, of reasons why we should tremble before a holy God. Never trembling is a tragedy of the human experience. But another tragedy, a second tragedy, is it happens when we do tremble, but we don't, Respond positively to it. It's when we start to tremble, we start to come under conviction, but rather than acting upon it and responding to what the Holy Spirit is doing, we turn and we walk away. And we pretend we've never trembled. We pretend we were never convicted. And over time, what happens is you become less able to tremble you become less able to be convicted. You may hear the same truth, just as Felix did, over and over and over again. But by not responding or responding to trembling and conviction over time, your heart will harden, and you may hear the same truth, but you're not responding the same way, and that truth is not affecting you the way that it once did. These are the two tragedies of the human experience. It's a tragedy to never tremble, to never be confronted, to never be convicted. But it's also a tragedy to never respond to trembling, never respond to conviction, to never act on it, but to deny it. And when we deny it, our hearts grow hardened. And we are no longer in a healthy position to respond to the reality of Jesus and his gospel. So there's a warning here in Felix's example. Felix is a tragic example. But here's the encouragement. The phrase that describes his fear in this moment is identical to the phrase used to describe someone else in the book of Acts who trembled, someone else in the book of Acts who came under conviction, but rather than denying it, they dove into it. Rather than rejecting it and ignoring it, they responded to it by putting their faith in Jesus. It happened to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Listen to these words. In Acts chapter 16, verse 29. We read that the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell down. This is when the earthquake hit, and this guy's aware of his mortality. He's afraid of dying. He comes into the apostle, because uh, into Paul's presence, and he falls at Paul's feet, and he says that he fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He was trembling. He was fearful, but instead of delaying or ignoring how he was feeling in that moment, he allowed his fear to catapult him to eternal life. So he goes to Paul and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they then tell him, I want you to believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. When you come under conviction, when you find yourself trembling because you're thinking about real things related to life and death heaven and hell judgment and salvation when you come under that conviction would you fall at the feet of Jesus put your faith in Jesus believe in him trust in him and let him let him flood your soul with peace and relief i remember talking to a young person one day after she put her faith in Jesus and before she put her faith in Jesus, she, she had several days where she was just trembling in fear, worried about her life, worried about judgment, worried about specific forms of sin and brokenness that had marked her story. And, but after she, but when she was trembling and she was encouraged to look to Jesus, she began to move in Jesus' direction. And as she prayed to put her faith in Jesus, she, she told me, Andrew, it was like, It was like this, it was this indescribable peace just came over me. My fear fled and I found myself at peace. I found myself joyful. I found myself alive. So let me ask you as we wrap this up, when the heat is turned up on your faith, when the heat is turned up in your life, whether it's the heat that comes by your faith being challenged like Paul's in this story, or the heat is being turned up in your conscience, the way Felix's, the way it happens to Felix in this moment, what do you do? How are you responding? If you're a follower of Jesus, are you rising to the occasion and, and allowing the gospel to account for your composure and to compel your courage? If you're not a Christian, the heat of conviction is being turned up in your life. Like Felix, how are you responding? Are you following your fear to Jesus, or are you ignoring it and pushing it aside? My hope and my encouragement for you is that you would follow it to Jesus, and that all of us would find ourselves being held together by Jesus, being being lifted up by Jesus, No matter what type of heat is being turned up in our lives in this present moment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to rise to the occasion when the heat is turned up in our lives. I want to pray for those who are following Jesus now to remain faithful. Even when it is hard to maintain composure and to exercise courage. I want to pray for those who are not yet Christians, who are not yet following Jesus, but perhaps they are feeling the heat of conviction and they are trembling in fear right now. I pray that your Holy Spirit would would compel them towards eternal life, that they would put their faith in Christ, that they would find relief and peace for their souls, all in Jesus' name, amen.